For over 40 years, volunteers have been at the core of KRCL. That continues today, whether it be on air, in the community, or just hauling studio cabinets from point A to point B. We wouldn't be here without all of you. From everyone here at KRCL, thanks to each and every one of you. This is Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives. I'm Laura Jones, and coming up on the show tonight, it is the 10th anniversary of the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights. And earlier today, a panel of experts joined University of Utah Professor of Law Erica George for a conversation on overcoming challenges and promoting change, taking stock of current and emerging efforts to advance accountability and leverage leadership. Subjects that she covers in her new book that's just been published, Incorporating Rights, Taking Stock of Strategies to Advance Corporate Accountability. But first, another spotlight on ways you can help this holiday season. If you go to krcl.org, right on the homepage is a slider that says Food, Gifts, and Clothing Drives. And find something to do. For instance, the Angel Tree. Since 1992, the KUTV2 News Salvation Army Angel Tree Program has been providing holiday gifts for needy children and seniors. It's made a difference in the lives of thousands of needy Utahns, and you can help out this year. There is still time, but all gifts must be returned by December 11th. So here's what you do. You participate by selecting an angel from any angel tree at a Cypress Credit Union branch, at Intermountain Harley-Davidson, or at Smith's Marketplace. You go shop for your angel, then return your new unwrapped gifts to the same angel tree locations by December 11th. Of course, there is a link if you just prefer to donate some cash. Big Brothers, Big Sisters of Utah can also use your donations this time of year. Local businesses host their donation bins to help make donating your used clothing items more convenient. And you can find that link online at krcl.org as well. Every kid in a coat still gathering coats to make sure every kid who needs one this winter has one to drop off new or gently used and clean coats, folks. You can send an email to everykidinacoat at gmail.com. I also have a link to their GoFundMe if you would like to participate that way. So again, on our website, krcl.org, food, clothing, gift drives for 2021. And now I want to pass the microphone to the YWCA to talk about their legislative priorities for 2022. But we're going to start with the most important thing first, and that is Candy Cane Lane. Gabe, will you introduce yourself to our listeners, please? Hi, Laura. Thank you so much for having me on. My name is Gabe Archuleta. My pronouns are Sharia, and I am the Public Policy Director at YWCA Utah. So what does that mean you get to do? Oh, I think I have one of the best jobs. Um, honestly, I get to advocate in our priority areas. I get to collaborate with other folks doing this work. I get to do edu- issue education on these issues. Um, and I get to camp out at the legislature during the legislative session. Well, I don't know how much fun that is, but I know what is, and that's Candy Cane <laughs> yeah. Lane. And I wanted to talk about how folks can can still get involved. It's coming up December 14th. You need volunteers to help set up and help take down. It's quite an involved uh, process, but it's all for the kids and the women and families that uh, the YWCA is taking care of these days. Yes. it. You know, when somebody's going through a traumatic event in life, Um, sometimes there's not a lot of room for joy. And I think Candy Cane Lane is one of those moments where not only can people support survivors of domestic violence with 
really crucial things like coats and gloves and gifts, but um, they can also help bring some joy to people's lives, laughter and fun. And uh, so we are looking for help as far as donations and um, for volunteers. So donations, let's talk about that because you have a wide variety of folks who will benefit from this. So can you give us some ideas for those in-kind donations? Yes. So brand new toys, treats for animals. So we are one of the shelters that allow animals on campus. So you might see people walking their dogs. We have cats on campus um, and some other animals. So it's for animals, um, game night baskets, and then clothing items. And I think anything that anybody would be interested in receiving themselves. So you have from the youngest, I'm guessing, infants to to moms. So that's something for folks to keep in mind. And do they need to be unwrapped when delivered to the YWCA downtown? Yes, bring them unwrapped. And you're right. We have infants all the way to mothers, but we also serve males who are experiencing domestic violence. While they're not housed on our campus, we will provide hotel vouchers for them. And we also serve them in our Salt Lake Area Family Justice Center, our walk-in center for DV services. So um, don't forget about the fathers out there and the men and others who are experiencing domestic violence as well. And then how does Candy Cane Lane work? Do the mothers and fathers go, quote unquote, shopping at Candy Cane Lane and pick things out for their family? So that's a good question. Each year we have had to adapt because there are new situations every single year. This year, what we're doing is having volunteers shop for the families. So we will be setting up in our gym and we will have anywhere uh, at any time, um, 5,000 items in our pop-up store and volunteers will go around and fulfill families' wish lists. And then, um, that also allows the community to volunteer on our campus, but doesn't um, destroy the um, participants and the residents' confidentiality and privacy. Ah, that's very crucial to Candy Cane Lane. Yeah. So what's the website where folks can uh, learn more about Candy Cane Lane, perhaps sign up for a volunteer shift? Because as I said, December 14th, it's happening. But then uh, you got to set it up on the 11th and you got to take it down the 21st. So lots of volunteers required. Yeah. Yes, our website is ywcauth dot org, and then forward slash Candy Cane Lane, and that's all spelled out: C A N D Y C A N E L A N E. I'll be sure to put a link in tonight's show notes, and because I know what you do, you already talked about it a bit. I want to get a preview of the 2022 general session of the Utah legislature and what the priorities are for the YWCA of Utah, which advocates for women, girls, and families. And it's always interesting to see um, if there's any shift at all. So tell us what is on deck for 2022 policy-wise. Okay. Yeah, thank you. One of the big shifts is last year we had nine policy priority areas, and this year we have only six and only six is still a lot. And that shift was 
just understanding that we have such a small policy team, which is myself and then sometimes interns. And with the amount of bills that are presented at the legislature, it is just such a challenge to be able to um, cover everything. So our public policy committee, which is a board committee with community members and staff, was tasked to really narrow down our policy priorities this year, which is really hard. We have a really broad um mission. And so it allows us to be able to go into all different areas. But what we decided on this year is childcare, domestic violence and sexual assault, housing, mental health, and the focus is really maternal mental health and children's mental health, racial and gender equity, and reproductive health. Now, I noticed that you listed those alphabetically. I'm not sure that one is more important than the other, but if you only had to pick one, what is a driving concern for the YWCA? Mm. Yeah, that's another change that we had. We tiered them last year, but then there are so many things that pop up. It's just whatever gets your attention at the moment. So they are listed out alphabetically. If I had to point one out, it's really us leaning into our racial and gender equity work. And one of the ways that we are doing that is operationally operationalizing our racial and gender equity analysis tool. So not just looking at policy areas isolated, but when we're looking at domestic violence, how is this going to impact communities of color, communities that have different gender identities? And so that's something that's going to be a big part of our work this year. And the gender equity portion, I mean, because W is right there in your title, um, YWCA, um, but we're in 2022 just about. And so you expand that concept of gender um, to reflect our time. So femmes, non-binary, et cetera, right? Yes. You know, it's it's also a broader question with our national affiliate. Um, it's something that we talk about, but it's, I don't think we can do this work without, authentically do this work without being inclusive of people and their um different ways of identifying or gender identities. I just, I don't think we can. So it's um, not just women, but you're right. It's expanded to women, femme, non-binary and persons of color. And I did want to ask about one more while we have you, and that is reproductive health, given what's going on at the Supreme Court and these cases Mm -hmm. rolling back potentially more than likely um, a woman's right to reproductive health, including abortion. Uh, Any concerns at the Y about a domino effect? on reproductive health should these cases upend 50 years of precedent? Yes, there's absolutely a concern because part of our mission is advocating for somebody's freedom and reproductive health is very much somebody's freedom to determine what happened, what they want to do with their body. And I was really, really excited that our national affiliate decided to file an amicus brief in the <clears throat> in the case that was heard at the Supreme Court this week, the Mississippi Jackson Women's Health Organization versus Dobbs. And so our national affiliate is really leaning into this as well. And um, it's something that's been important to the YWCA for, for many years, um, but it's, we can't talk about justice and freedom without talking about reproductive health. Well, and the trigger bills that are lined up across the country, including here in Utah, yeah, um, it, it feels like 
if the Supreme Court upends Roe v. Wade and these trigger, bill, trigger bills are launched, that it won't just stop there. I mean, I wasn't alive when, or at least a grown woman, when uh, birth control became an option for women in planning mm-hmm. their families. And I am really concerned. And I know that people hearing me say this will go, oh, you're overreacting. Well, here we are 50 plus years after Roe v. Wade. I don't think we're overreacting about the choices that women and their families have to plan their families Mm -hmm. the way they choose. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't think you're overreacting at all. And I think it's just a matter of preparing for those trigger bills and then also being realistic with what we can accomplish in Utah. And maybe it's um, maybe it's just making sure there are carve outs for people who have experienced rape or sexual assault, if we are going to have a bill like that. So, um, I, I share your concern, Laura. So how can people get involved or follow your work as the legislative session ramps up in January? Yes. So we are going to be hiring a, a legislative intern and we are going to pay this intern. This will be the first time that we're paying the intern. So that's going to be posted soon. And I'll be sure to share with you when we have posted that position. And so that's one way to get involved on our website at ywcautah.org forward slash advocacy. We have a way to sign up for our email updates. And then I am on Twitter at ywcautahpolicy. And will the bill tracker be back? Yeah, so we are going to have our bill tracker. That's a great tool, folks, to uh, log on occasionally and check out where things stand. Um, And I take it, like you said, you'll be posting and such. So we look forward to having you back to report out on the people's business next year. Thanks, Gabe. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Laura. Have a great day. Gabe Archuleta, Public Policy Director at the YWCA of Utah. Check tonight's show notes to catch up on those legislative priorities. But also, if you can and are able to support Candy Cane Lane and make a great holiday season for the men, women, and children served by the YWCA in our communities. I'm Laura Jones, and this is Radioactive. When we come back, we'll share some of that virtual conversation held earlier today about incorporating rights, taking stock of strategies to advance corporate accountability. Support for KRCL comes from our listeners and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Hey, Salt Lake County Parks and Rec needs lifeguards, and you can try it out December 11th during the county's Just Try It lifeguarding event, open to folks ages 14 and up. Get all the details at bit.ly slash slcoguard. Hi, I'm Mike of Thursday Night Psych Out on KRCL. Join me every Thursday night at 8 p.m. for two and a half hours of far-out sounds from the psychedelic 60s to the space rock of the 70s, the Paisley Underground and Gothic Psych of the 80s, shoegaze from the 90s, and the new psychedelic renaissance from the last 20 years. It's the psychedelic movement. That's Thursday Night Psych Out, every Thursday at 8 p.m. Tune in, turn on, and psych out. Welcome back to Radioactive. I'm Laura Jones. Coming up at 7 o'clock, Democracy Now!, followed by Thursday Night Psych Out with DJ Mike at 8 o'clock, Gianni in the Dirty Boulevard at 10.30, Rich checks in at 1 a.m. for I Don't Sound Like Nobody, Jolene's Illustrated Blues at 3 a.m., and John Florence at 6 with your brand new day. And you can always catch up on the last two weeks of any show at krcl.org. Click the programming tab and you'll find the On Demand button.
For the rest of the hour now, a special collaboration with the S.J. Quinney College of Law in recognition of Human Rights Day tomorrow and the 10th anniversary of the U.N. Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights. Earlier today, they celebrated the release of Incorporating Rights, Taking Stock of Strategies to Advance Corporate Accountability by Professor Erica George. George is the Samuel D. Thurman Professor of Law at the S.J. Quinney College of Law and Director of the Tanner Humanities Center at the University of Utah's College of Humanities. Her research explores the responsibility of corporations to respect international human rights and various efforts to hold business enterprises accountable for alleged abuses. And we start the excerpt with Professor George. I came to be aware of business and human rights issues as a law student intern with Human Rights Watch. I'd taken a January term under the supervision of Mikhail Matua and Joseph Weiler when I was a student at Harvard Law School and landed at Human Rights Watch, where at the time researchers were working on the issues around this man's case. This man is Ken Sarawiwa. Um, I'm also now in the humanities. Um, He is a poet or was a poet, was a journalist, and he was an environmental activist in the Niger region of Nigeria, and also a member of the Ogoni ethnic minority. Um, He happened to have the misfortune of living on land that was oil rich um, and resource rich, and his community of fishers and farmers were being increasingly displaced, um, polluted, and abused by the Nigerian military regime at the time with human rights activists documented the tacit complicity of Shell Oil Company. So the researchers at the time were looking at ways that not just the Nigerian government was responsible for what befell Ken Sarawiwa and his nine colleagues, which ultimately was execution by that government, um, but also what were the conditions that allowed that to occur. Um, I wanted to share a few words of poems by Kenigoni, and many of them were about living in a shell-shocked land, having trees dying, um, having children with luckless lungs unable to breathe the air. So very much tied to his environmental activism were the human rights violations. So the confluence of the kinds of concerns in this case were really the things that animated me to want to develop a course around it when I ultimately came to law teaching from practice. So this book is the result of many years of a seminar that I've called over the years, corporate citizenship, corporate social responsibility, business and human rights, human rights and business. And it takes us through um, a range of the problems that I've observed over the time since I was a law student till today. Um, The book is divided into two parts, context and challenges, where I talk about international law, corporate responsibility, Um, and assessing risk and accountability. And then part two is about the responses, the strategies that activists are using, that investors are using, and the ways in which businesses are responding to these demands and increased escalation of expectations to be more responsible in respecting human rights. I also hope that the book makes two primary contributions. Um, I summarize through snapshots and stories the ways and roles that business plays in the enjoyment of human rights and how business actors are implicated in um, conditions for better or for worse. Um, I've done this through a close reading of court proceedings, of pleadings. Um, and then the second contribution is really looking at ways in which the commitments that corporations are made are complied with. And for this piece, I did a close 
ethnographic research with um, the Business and Human Rights Resource Center with the UN Guiding Forum, Guiding Principles Forum, um, basically shadowing and observing and participating in conversations that investors were having around these issues, that policymakers were having, that multi-stakeholder initiative organizations were having, and looking to the rhetorical changes and shifts that we saw, that I saw companies make in response. So if there is one takeaway um, from this book, I hope that it is a sense of possibility, um, even though the challenges are vast. So um, we are having this conversation in advance of International Human Rights Day, which is tomorrow. It marks the anniversary of the signing of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt was a part of the delegation of that drafting. She's been called the first lady to the world. And this document came about after the atrocities of World War II, where the understanding would be that everyone everywhere would have the same rights and we would prevent future conflict um, and war by doing so. When I teach human rights, I start with the Holocaust, which was the um, impetus for the UN guide, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, recognizing that this kind of atrocity, um, a war to end all wars, the war crimes, the extermination, the genocide, the Holocaust, um, was something that we cannot countenance. What's less emphasized often when this is taught is the role of industry in enabling the Nazi machine to function and to function effectively and efficiently. Um, it, IBM made the punch cards that allowed the Nazis to track who they shipped and killed and murdered. Um, interestingly enough, IBM technology was also in the courtroom at Nuremberg as part of the documentation for what the Nazis did do and ultimately contributed to um, a shift in how we think about international crime and international justice. We think very differently when we think about business. So the UN Declaration on Human Rights, most human rights laws focused on the law of nations, international law. Business um, is not, businesses are not nations. So Facebook is not France. Facebook can't sign on to things like international human rights covenants, but they certainly can have an impact on the enjoyment of human rights. Um, I am a graduate of University of Chicago. Um, Chicago School Economics was very alive and well at the time I was in school, as was a shareholder primacy understanding of what businesses were about and what they were supposed to do, maximize value for shareholders. And that is understood often as creating wealth. Um, and Milton Friedman is often repeated for free market um, emphasis on the importance of in this particular view, not regulating global business beyond playing within the bounds of law um, and moving forward and making profits. In the business and human rights context, this is an impoverished view because often law can be not in the interest or in service of human rights. The case of Ken Sarawiwa would be an example. And there are many more where following domestic law in a particular context would be a really sharp variance with our understandings of everyone everywhere having the same equal rights to respect for their human rights. This was understood by the late Kofi Annan, Nobel laureate, who was the UN Secretary General at the time in the mid to early 90s, where a lot of these conversations were being launched in the activist community, where we were looking at business more closely. And in 1999, at a speech at the World Economic Forum in Davos, he launched the UN um, Compact, 
which was focused on business. And in 2005, he appointed the now late John Ruggie, a professor at Harvard's Kennedy School, to really investigate what are the nature of the relationships and responsibility that business has in a global economy. Um, Kofi Annan appreciated and understood that rising inequality could lead to rising conflict. And to the extent that we've got global markets and business moving faster than states are able to regulate them, assuming they're willing to do so, this could lead to precisely the kinds of conditions that promote conflict, contrary to the peace mission of the United Nations. Um, the UN Global Compact set an early framework. In the book, I outline a chronology of different policy instruments um, at the global level over the years. But this one was significant in shaping things that business can have impact on or influence over, human rights, labor rights, environmental impacts, anti-corruption. And we saw some of these principles translated through the work that Professor John Ruggie did through multi-stakeholder engagements and ultimately to mandate terms to come up with a framework for analyzing how businesses should operate in the global economy, where the primary responsibility for respecting human rights would reside with the state, meaning a government should enact legislation, enforce regulation, and could potentially even extra take an extraterritorial interest in what its citizens would be doing abroad to the extent that it impacts human rights, its business citizens. And here's where the significant shift happened for the business and human rights movement, um, I argue. And this was taking um, a clear-eyed approach to what businesses' responsibilities were. Significantly, responsibility to respect human rights. And in my interviews with business um, sustainability professionals and others, this was really significant for them, um, having to own responsibility for the sphere of influence that they had. So at minimum responsibility to respect as understood through the UN guiding principles is having a policy commitment to acknowledge the responsibility to respect human rights and then doing due diligence and having a sense of what your human rights impacts are and sharing that information with the broader public. And then finally, the victims. People in communities like Ken Sarawiwa should have effective access to remedy or grievance mechanisms. I mean, I often imagine what if Ken Sarawiwa could have gone to a functioning system and sought justice? Um, might he be alive? Might his community be better off? So this was a significant shift um, and much of the book circles around the before and after these principles and how they're being put into practice in a practical way. How are human rights actors translating human rights responsibility for business? Um, and who are the stakeholders doing that? And so the second part of the book really focuses on how these principles can be made real and how they can serve in the absence of government ability or will to regulate business around human rights issues. How can this close a regulatory gap? How can we increase self-regulation of business and shape that in a way that it's co-created with the communities concerned? Um, a significant, really interesting um, area where I had a great time doing this research, interviewing information entrepreneurs is what I call them. These were people who identified problems with different industry sectors. In the case of the technology sector, Ranking Digital Rights, Rebecca McKinnon um, founded Ranking Digital Rights to look at surveillance, privacy issues, freedom of expression issues, and comparing corporations with one another. Know the Chain. Um, took up the 
mantle of moving forward California's Supply Chain Transparencies Act, which asks companies to report what it is they're doing or not doing to detect whether or not there's forced labor or modern slavery in their supply chain. Um, know the chain took that information, ranked companies against the standard, and was very friendly in its approach to using benchmarking as a way of identifying and sharing best practices. The corporate human rights benchmark inspired by investors um, looks more broadly than just human trafficking at a range of corporate governance factors that could conceivably impact the enjoyment of human rights. So they're measuring things like governance and policies, grievance mechanisms and remedies, and performance, not just the policy. Um, there are also less friendly groups doing rankings and ratings. I interviewed um, a really wonderful activist at the Enough Project where they took conflict minerals reporting and compared them against one another to, in his words, rank and spank the businesses that were not doing as well or were doing just bad. Um, and we saw policy change um, and interaction with law in that area. So reporting and ranking have been effective and interesting because businesses seem to take up um, where they are in the ranking. I also interviewed the gentleman who founded an access to medicines index, Vim um, Learveld. And he explained to me, he was a former um, pharmaceutical industry executive. He knew the language of the pharmaceutical sector and his sector-based rankings and standards, access to medicines, looked at what businesses were doing and weren't doing. And later the industry sector actors involved would be interested in becoming better. Um, and he was able to document that. They would reach out to him, they would call him, they would wanna know what they need to be doing better. And he also shared that he also shifted the kinds of information he would request, um, increasing the amount, changing the issues to focus on identifying what would really make a difference and have an impact. And that was an exchange, it was interactive. Um, many of these benchmarks methodologies are open in the sense that they take recommendations from both those actors that are being measured, the businesses, as well as interested stakeholders. So moving closer to a stakeholder sense of engaging with business. However, back to market um, mechanisms where we've seen tremendous success is the area of shareholder advocacy. I interviewed um, people who are putting forward shareholder proposals. Um, I also had to teach myself securities law for this. I'm a human rights lawyer. And um, among the things I learned besides shareholder derivative litigation, which is an option, um, shareholders also have voice. They have at the right to have information that is material to the decisions that they're going to make. And there've been leading organizations, the longstanding one, Interfaith Center for Corporate Accountability that came about during um, moves to end apartheid has been active in putting forward shareholder proposals um, and coordinating assets under management from a range of different actors, primarily faith-based investors initially, um, and then moving on to broader types of investors. As you so has been extraordinarily effective in its advocacy um, targeting issues and industry sectors and powerful consumers, like leveraging the buying power. The Fair Food Campaign has done some important work bringing in the voices of workers and increasing um, wages and improving farm conditions. Taken together in this portion of the book, I investigate how ethical investors and conscious consumers 
are becoming enforcement agents in their own right by directing their dollars towards businesses that are doing better and seeking to change the policies of businesses that are doing less well. Um, and increasingly in the environmental space, these shareholder proposals have met with success. They've been passed. Um, even when they're not passed, they've become parts of dialogue with businesses and most of their demands, even if the shareholder vote hasn't gone forward, um, empirical evidence has shown that the policy changes ultimately are made. So this is an area where there's opportunity if we can persuade investors to take that choice. Now, when I spoke to businesses, um, most often they identified multi-stakeholder engagement as the thing most effective for them in complying with the commitments that they make. In the instance of the voluntary principles, when will security forces be used and who will be used in protecting assets or pipelines? This was part of the issue um, that went so badly in Nigeria with military forces shooting activists. Um, the voluntary principles on security enabled business to have their own set of rules, even if in the particular context or country they were working in, the rules were different or the rules of engagement would allow for abuses. They were holding themselves to a different standard. The Fair Labor Association works with businesses to clean up their supply chains or at least know what's happening in their supply chains and they can use the leverage that they have um, through certification to ensure that buyers are confidently buying products that are sourced in a responsible way. Um, fun footnote, the University of Utah is a Fair Labor Association member. So our athletic apparel, as we go into the Rose Bowl, our athletes will be wearing Fair Labor Association certified goods. The Global Network Initiative um, focuses on the, trans, the technology sector and is the most recent of these engagements and works to set policy around issues that are emerging as we are confronting what to do with facial recognition technology or disinformation. Um, the digital rights arena is complicated, growing, fast moving and dynamic. And this multi-stakeholder network is putting forward best practices, learning and keeping the relevant actors in conversation with one another. And the conversation is changing. So in the conclusion of the empirical research of my book, um, encouraged by some conversations I had had with colleagues at the American Bar Foundation, our socio-legal scholars, um, they were very interested in my data to support the claim that we can make a difference. And so I coded across four different industry sectors, technology, apparel and agriculture, um, extractives, oil and gas, and information communications technology for points in time over the last decade where the company had come under scrutiny, either been sued um, for human rights violations, um, had a high profile, embarrassing situation in the public. And what we see at times before and after is an increased sophistication of the treatment of human rights in their public reporting, their sustainability reporting, and their reporting to investors. I also saw that codes of conduct internal to the businesses changed. Um, at least on paper for the better. So um, this is an image of Microsoft in 2010, prior to the um, exposure of its complicity in the PRISM project, which many argue violated civil liberties as part of the war on terror and um, well, surveillance state concerns. And we see Microsoft shifting semantically towards an incorporation of the kinds of language that human rights activists had been pressing for a long time. Now, to be sure, um, 
talk, some say is cheap, though sustainability reporting um, businesses will tell you is expensive. But I think what I take from this research is that there are different ways of understanding freedom. Sure, one is the free market, um, independent of any responsibility, or another is a conception of freedom that embeds within it a responsibility to respect the dignity of others. And in the end, it comes down to choice and leadership. Um, they're competing concerns, certainly, of market value, but they're ways to move markets in the right direction and businesses as well. In the book, in addition to the IBM involvement with Nazi Germany, I discuss GM's involvement with apartheid South Africa and how that was different. Um, rather than complying with apartheid laws, at least within GM's plants in that country, um, the Reverend Leon Sullivan, who was at the time a member of General Motors' board, this is also, I think, an interesting example of what board diversity can bring to board decision making. But he had the idea that perhaps GM should not be segregating its workers, that perhaps we take seriously equal rights and human rights and apartheid is a violation of it. And so um, moving forward, he organized the Sullivan Principles. He continued to press for change um, to end apartheid. Ultimately, GM and many other companies did leave the country, but for a moment, they were active in a conversation about what needed to be different and what needed to change and why rights needed to be respected. So I see evolution, I see possibility. Um, I am seeing more mainstream business actors taking up the mantle or at least the rhetoric of what human rights and responsibility would require of them and genuinely try to investigate what is to be done. So I am invited um, and I'm grateful to have a panel of experts to talk through where we go next. Um, we are also at the 10 year anniversary of the UN Guiding Principle on Business and Human Rights, which the late John Ruggie crafted um, and many live on the legacy of continuing this conversation. So it is my hope that this book will contribute to that conversation and convince you that there is the possibility to change business as usual. Thank you. Professor Erica George from a panel earlier today. This is Radioactive on KRCL. And now we're going to get into a conversation with fellow panelists, including Surya Deva, professor at the City University of Hong Kong and member of the UN Working Group on Business and Human Rights. Philip Alston, Special Rapporteur since 2014 with the United Nations Human Rights Council, and Fernanda Hoppenheim, Co-Executive Director at Project on Organizing Development, Education, and Research, an organization in Latin America dedicated to corporate accountability. And we start with a question posed by moderator and S.J. Quinney College of Law professor Tony Engie, a member of the Third World Approaches Network of Scholars. So the general question would be, you know, as Erica has mentioned, uh, it's been almost a decade after the business and human rights, after the, I think we could call them the Ragi principles were outlined. You know, so the question would be, uh, you know, what progress has been made? Um, uh, how do we account for what success uh, that, that has been accomplished? And what needs to be done? And I suppose it's very relevant here that Surya, I'm, I'm starting with you, and I think uh, you've just outlined, uh, I think you've just got back from Geneva, or not got back from Geneva, but you were in Geneva, at least virtually, and you are outlining the next 10 years in this in this arena. So perhaps you could, perhaps, uh, you know, uh, in the light of 
Erica's book and uh, your thoughts on these issues, uh, outline your, uh, your ideas about how we should see what's coming up. <laughs> Thank you very much, Tony. And at the outset, let me congratulate Erica for this uh, wonderful book. Uh, this is about 3.30 a.m. and uh, I've never done a webinar around this time. So I think this uh, is an evidence of uh, the book and as well as our friendship with Erica. So congratulations, Erica, once again. I think, uh, couple of points that I would like to highlight is, let me start with the book, Incorporating Rights. I think this book uh, is crucial in my view because uh, it is uh, exposing this distinction that we often make with voluntary and obligatory norms, because ultimately what we should look at is the practice, mm -hmm. because what is obligatory on paper could be voluntary in practice. And what is voluntary on paper could become obligatory in practice. So I think international human rights law and lawyers, especially in the BHR field, they should keep in mind that what is the practice? I'm not trying to underestimate the importance of obligatory norms. Uh, I've consistently argued that the obligatory norms do matter. But what is also crucial is that what is the practice of it? Now in the last uh, 10 years, uh, Professor Late, uh, Professor John Ruggie, I think his immense contribution is that he provided all of us a common language. And that common language, especially part of pillar two is the human rights due diligence. All businesses, wherever they're operating are expected to respect human rights, irrespective of the context where they're operating, irrespective of their private or public enterprise, small or big, any sector. The other contribution is that the discourse on business and human rights or the uptake of the UN guiding principles has gone beyond estates and businesses. This is significant. And I think that also relates to what uh, Erika's book tries to highlight in terms of various actors, whether these are multi-stakeholder um, uh, initiatives or these are uh, various market forces from consumers to investors, to those who are ranking and reporting what businesses are doing or not doing well. So I think that is again, uh, a remarkable achievement. In, in terms of uh, uh, the challenges though, I uh, have been working in this space for 20 years now. And for me, the starting point has been the Popal gas tragedy of 1984. So I, I took up a position in, in the city called Bhopal in, in year 2000 precisely. And that was my turning point to business and human rights. And, and I take Bhopal as a touchstone in measuring the progress we have made in the last 20 years or last 50 years, or we can go back to 16th century British East India Company, in fact. We can go as far as we would like to in, in this space of business and human rights. And I feel that the Practice, if you look at the practice, and I think I go back to the point I started with, that we should look at the practice. So I, if I look at the practice, the progress has been very slow and very limited. So despite the promise that the book provides, and despite the, I would say the potential that the book offers, there's a huge gap between paper and practice. And I believe in always keeping rights holders at the center of this discourse. So if I ask this question about the progress that we have made, my question is what has changed for the rights holders on the ground, whether they are in Nigeria, 
or they are at a mine somewhere or they are in a in a supply chain uh, let us say in china or in bangladesh or anywhere in india what has changed for them and i i'm not able to travel for the last two years as much as i did in the previous four years as part of my mandate the response i get is that hardly anything had changed and the fear that i have is and i have written about it that this business and human rights agenda might end up becoming the new corporate social responsibility the new csr of course in the book um, eric articulates that csr is important and can be embedded the rights can be embedded in all that so i think all these are important aspects i think going forward we expect as a working group we expect greater ambition on the part of states businesses investors everyone in fact to take un guiding principles seriously or at least take the spirit of the un guiding principles more seriously so more work needs to be done uh, but i think this book uh, makes an in- important contribution in showcasing that we can't rely merely on states of course the states are crucial and i think it is becoming increasingly relevant that states are crucial even to support pillar 2 and that's where this uh, whole debate about mandatory human rights due diligence is unfolding especially in europe so i will stop with that uh, tony thank you very much for having me uh, thanks so much surya for giving uh, us that uh, perspective and uh, i suppose the question would be uh, for people on the ground what is the remedy that might be available in these types of circumstances looking at the third pillar that uh, erica outlined um, and uh, you know we'd like to think of the processes that erica points to and what in those processes needs to be really developed further uh philip uh, may i then uh, turn to you and ask your views on you know what has been what progress have we made in this field in the last 10 years what you know what is to be done uh from your perspective thanks uh thanks tony um and it's a a great pleasure to be part of the the panel um i think that erica's book does a a terrific job of marshaling the evidence of what has been achieved and the ways in which that has happened um i think at the end my sense is that what we see is that some corporate actors in some industries in some circumstances uh have actually uh come to the party and uh done the right thing but i think we're still left with the much broader picture uh that we need to focus on um i think in terms of factors in success um i think there's been an important role played uh, through exposure and mobilization pressure from activists from the media from consumers and others and i think that is a an irreplaceable uh, dimension uh, the problem of course with that is that it can be effective we've seen with apparel companies uh, footwear some of the other classic consumer goods areas um but if we take some of the biggest concerns that confront us today such as climate change uh or the tech sector for example uh it's very difficult to see 
uh, the sort of progress in terms of the uh, meaningful embrace of human rights uh, by a great many of the actors there. Um, the problems, of course, are that a lot of the corporate actors are shield from, shielded from direct pressures. Uh, they don't have the sort of incentives that uh, Patagonia has, for example, to, uh, to, <laughs> to come clean or to go green. Um, they're just uh, able to work through a lack of transparency uh, and the result is that uh, there's been also a little change, I think, in the uh, underlying corporate ethos, um, which still, uh, despite uh, the comments made about uh, Milton Friedman, uh, is based on the assumption that the responsibility of corporations is to make profits and it's for other actors to do uh, good. Um, I think just uh, to make a, another broad comment, um, it's important in this area to recognize that we need a diverse array of actors. Um, I guess it must be a decade ago now when uh, John Ruggie and I were uh, were special procedures mandate holders um, at the same time. I always had the very irritating experience of following John uh, literally on the podium. And John would come down from the podium with uh, acclamation all around and smiles. Uh, and I would replace him in the same seat and governments would go on the attack uh, and tell me what a terrible job I was doing. Um, after we both uh, stepped down from our positions, John asked me to join him in setting up, or not setting it up, but to join him on the board of SHIFT, uh, which took forward his work. And initially I was reluctant to do that, but we had a very good conversation. And I said, listen, John, my position is that your principles are a, a very good starting point, but that a hell of a lot more needs to be done. And I wouldn't want all the energy to go into your principles. Uh, and John was absolutely fine with that. Uh, and I maintain the same view that the sort of initiatives that Erica has surveyed so effectively are all extremely important. They do raise consciousness. They do hold the feet of some corporate actors to the fire, but they need to be supplemented very significantly uh, by uh, much stronger efforts in other directions. And I think my bottom line, uh, I'm not sure if this is contrary to what uh, Surya said, uh, but is that we really have to uh, look to governments as uh, the indispensable component in all of this. And I certainly agree with what he said about looking forward to what the European Union is able to do in terms of developing the concept of due diligence into uh, something that might really be the beginnings of a legal regime. Um, I would add uh, but this is maybe gratuitous that I am extremely frustrated by what I see uh, in terms of the treaty process. 
Um, it just seems to me to be, it's a migrant workers convention all over again, where you're going to have uh, utopian elements enshrined and none of the serious actors will uh, participate in it. And the trouble with that is that it takes up the oxygen that is needed to fuel other um, major initiatives designed to promote uh, effective legal regulation. Uh, thanks so much for it. You've raised uh, so many interesting questions about whether you know, different industries uh, might have different approaches and how we should understand that. And uh, uh, also interesting to hear your comments on your interaction with John, John Ruggie. Um, and uh, you remind us, uh, I suppose, also of the uh, recent treaty prohibiting nuclear weapons or the use of nuclear weapons, where again, you have all the non-nuclear states uh, signing on and the nuclear states saying, okay, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> Um, and that type of treaty is almost a sign of desperation. It's almost like, well, look, we've got nothing to lose. Uh, you know, so it's interesting how we should interpret those ty types of events. Uh, and now, if I may turn to Fernanda, uh, who's uh, done all this wonderful work in the Latin America and Caribbean region, uh, as to um, your thoughts, Fernando, on what progress you see as having been made and what challenges we face and how we can uh, achieve the goals that we seek in terms of more corporate accountability. Thank you very much. Such a difficult question to answer in, in a few minutes. But um, first of all, I wanted also to add my congratulations to Erica for this book um, and to celebrate the contributions that this publication is making and your contributions. I'm so happy that we finally met. I've been following your work for a while. Uh, we met online, of course, because, you know, the pandemic is still going on, apparently, but um, but um, I'm really glad to be able to join this conversation. I also just recently joined the working group a month ago, and um, a lot of learnings already in a month, and a lot of challenges ahead. Um, I think that, I mean, I, I, some of the things that Surya mentioned, I already had them in my notes prepared for this first round, because I... I think we, we think alike in many things. And one is that, um, of course, there, there is progress in terms of, you know, we have a common language now, let's say, right? This is part of the conversation. The conversation has shifted in the past 10 years, um, I would say significantly, but that doesn't necessarily translate in action on the ground or in uh, significant changes for people's lives. Are we changing lives on the ground? That's kind of the question I always grapple with, you know, in my mind. I feel responsible to to push for change that actually changes people's lives. And I've, I mean, I've, for example, accompanied a case for seven years now in Mexico, and nothing has changed for the people on the ground. So 10 of the seven past years, these people has been tr struggling to access justice and remedy. They haven't been able to, right? And um, what are the barriers there? What are the challenges that they're, they are still facing? And I think those are the kind of things that we should be looking at more, more specifically. And um, yeah, there might be companies basically sitting in the headquarters, de designing good you know, human rights policies, or, or, or even implementing or starting to implement adequate uh, due diligence processes. But how does that translate to, you know, their own subsidiaries or the value, you know, the, the, 
supply chain and their commercial associates in other countries, right? Those conversations don't necessarily translate to the ground. And that's where most human rights abuses happen, right? Uh, and um, so I think there's there are more challenges than progress, if, if I may say. Um, so I think this this 10 years have been fundamental, or we've been working on these things, calling it with a different name for many more decades. But, you know, we've had the UNGPs for 10 years now. And I think, um, again, we have the common language, we have policies, we have, um, you know, business associations, uh, uh, you know, assuming public commitments to the human rights, to the UNGPs, um, to, you know, contributing to addressing the climate <clears throat> crisis and so on. But I don't see, to be frank, a fundamental change in how business is done. You know, I don't see <clears throat> this change as much as I would like, at least, from, you know, the shareholder approach to the stakeholder approach. And again, it's in the narrative, but is it happening on the ground? I think it's difficult to, to really find successful stories there. Uh, in terms of due diligence, I think there's much to be done to you know, develop common standards, common methods, <clears throat> to involve much more, for example, the financial sector, particularly the big players that are you know, the fuel to the companies operating on the ground. Um, and um, again, I, I really think that the, the bottom line question that we should be, ask, be asking ourselves for the next 10 years is how much are we changing lives? How much are we really, you know, <clears throat> achieving systemic change? And that, that I think it's a challenge for our community, the business and human rights community. And I think um, having an intersectional approach that, you know, kind of, it's not only happening, the discussions are not only happening at the Global North uh, spaces in the headquarters of the companies and so on and so forth is very important for the next decade. So I'll stop here and I'm sorry, Mexico City, it's a pretty noisy city, probably similar to New York. And um, <laughs> I apologize for the background noise. Thank you. Uh, thanks so much, uh, Fernanda. And again, it raises this crucial question, you know, uh, what sort of change do we want and how do we achieve it? Um, and how do the processes uh, that Erica has been uh, outlining play a role in that? What, what more uh, needs to be done? Uh, uh, what uh, that is pointed out in the book uh, needs to be further developed. Incorporating rights, taking stock of strategies to advance corporate accountability. Not only the name of the latest book by University of Utah College of Law professor Erica George, but also a panel discussion held earlier today in recognition of Human Rights Day tomorrow and the 10th anniversary of the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights. Check tonight's show notes for bios on all of the speakers in this special excerpt shared with Radioactive by the S.J. Quinney College of Law at the University of Utah. And we didn't have quite enough time to get the entire conversation into tonight's show, so I'll have a link to the archived conversation in the show notes as well. Where can you find that? krcl.org. I'm Laura Jones. This has been Radioactive. Thanks for listening, and have a great night. Meet Richard Parks, host of I Don't Sound Like Nobody, Friday mornings at 1 a.m. on KRCL. Radio saved my life. I mean, as a kid, there was no adult males who were talking to me except the radio. 
So I used to listen to radio all the time. I remember getting up at midnight to listen to R&B from the Trenton station with Jerry Blavitt, the geeter with the heater, the boss with the hot sauce, you know, listening to uh, play by play. And those people talked to me and the music talked to me. Let me know that whoever those artists were, they were thinking about things the same way I was. And it was good to know that. I just finished a book that says that the first rock and roll record was recorded in 1926. So I, I stumble back into the 20s sometimes, but a lot of post-World War II R&B and a lot of 50s. And KRCL's just, um, you know, I came here in 1979 and I don't know if I would have stayed without KRCL. It's been a uh, continual radio lifeline for me. Richard Parks, host of I Don't Sound Like Nobody, Fridays at 1 a.m. only on KRCL 90.9.